Amen. It's good. It's good. As we transition, uh, before we open our Bibles, uh, I just want to say a couple of things. Uh, first, thank you. Um, you know, the church is not about me, and I've said that forever and ever and ever. It's just not. But a couple of weeks ago, I was uh, quite sick uh, during the week, and it became apparent by the end of the week that there was no way I could stand in front of these lights because I couldn't sit in a... I couldn't sit in a dark room without my eyes just blowing up and uh, much less on the stage with these lights and attempt to uh, preach, not to mention that the same sinus infection I had moved into my throat and chest and talking was difficult and all those kinds of things. So I had to miss a Sunday and the team scrambled greatly but did an incredible job of just making sure that Sundays could go on without me because frankly, they're not about me. And if I were going to be 100% honest with you, I would also tell you Sundays are not about you either. But we have to mature and grow to that place, right, where we recognize that what we do week in and week out here at Harvest, not just Sundays, but all week long, it all revolves around Jesus Christ. And we'll talk about that a bit today as we study the Bible. So thank you to the team and thank you to all of you for being gracious enough to just understand that that uh, when I'm sick, you don't want it, right? <laughs> and so um, thank you for those kinds of days and for vacation kinds of days and, and, and for just caring well for me and caring well for my family. It is um, deeply, deeply appreciated. I also just wanted to mention, uh, we've talked about Easter invites already and Easter help already, but I just want to reemphasize, like, you know, it's hard to believe that Easter is next weekend, uh, but it is, and this is Holy Week. Um, in the Harvest Connections page, I don't know if you're on that or not, but Harvest has a Facebook page, and then we have a private page that's a Harvest Connections page. And that Harvest Connections page, Julie posted something this week I thought was really cool. It's an app you can download called Easter Now. Is that right? Do I have that right? If you, if you, if you go to the Harvest Connections page or you just search the, like, Google Play Store or the i, i, whatever the Apple version of that is, uh, for Easter now, it's an app you can download. Uh, I was walking through it this morning and it walks you day by day through what happens during Holy Week and everything that leads up to Easter Sunday. Kind of in real time, in a sense. Um, at least day by day. And so I, I think that's tremendously beneficial. I would encourage you to do that. But as you do things like that to tune your own soul into what God might do this week, be in tune just as, April, as uh, Rachel just prayed that God's at work in other souls too. And you never know when the opportunity to invite someone might pop up. That invite might look like an invite to the Easter egg hunt. Everybody at the Easter egg hunt will get an invite to Sunday, of course. Uh, multiple invites, actually. Uh, but it may be that you have the chance to invite somebody to be here with you on Sunday morning. It's be as simple as the text we put on the screen earlier, or it can be just a personal, hey, I'd love to have you come sit with me at Harvest. You know, we're 9, 1045, um, which is a good reminder. We have two services this year. If you're online, 9 and 1045, again, uh, is our normal times. And we just went with normal times uh, this year. Some Easter's past, we've done, you know, more services and at different times. And we just want to make sure everybody's on the same page. So 9, 1045, I would imagine most of you will be here at 
9. And uh, I would imagine most of our 1045 crowd will be here at 1045. But uh, what will happen next Sunday, I promise you this, there'll be people in the service you don't recognize um, because they might be 1045ers or they might be people who, you know, are only here occasionally. Um, we want to make sure that when we see folks that we've not seen in quite some time, that we just shower them with grace and shower them with love. Um, you know, I mean, I, I could play the game. Somebody walks in the door. Um, you know, I'm admitting this on video, so I'm not trying to hide it we could play the shame game and like where you been we haven't seen you since last easter but that's not going to do any good that's not going to motivate anybody on anything what would motivate folks is just good jesus-like love and so we just want to love on folks as they're here next week Uh, we want to do things like give up our seats give up our parking place we're going to add more chairs the room will be fuller next sunday we can pretty well guarantee that we just want to love those folks well um So we've been in a series uh, in the Bible called Mistaken Identity. We're walking our way slowly through the book of Colossians in the New Testament. I would uh, invite you to open your Bibles with me to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles on the back table. There's Bibles over here in our uh, sort of welcome center, uh, just around the room in various places. They're blue. Feel free to grab one of our blue Bibles and write your name in it. Consider it yours. We give our Bibles away for free because we think everybody uh, should have their own Bible. Bible and be able to, to read uh, God's word together. I just want to set up where we've been. We were in the middle of Colossians 2, like three ages ago, whenever it was I preached last, and we were talking about the difference between empty spirituality or empty religion and grace. And I want to build on that again today by just asking us simply, why is grace better than religion? Why is grace better than empty spirituality? And I'm calling it empty for a reason that will become obvious as we work our way through this. But I think it's so, so important that we realize that that empty spirituality points me away from Jesus toward me. That religion in its essence says to everyone else, God included, look at me and look at how good I am. But grace, on the other hand, points me away from me to Jesus and says, look at Jesus and how good Jesus is. And it's very easy for Christianity even to fall into just sort of empty religion that becomes another like notch in the belt, another my spirituality is better than your spirituality, my way of doing things or my denomination or my interpretation of the Bible or or, or when it becomes about me, it's empty. And I've often thought that religion should come with a with a warning label, really, if you think about it. That religion in general should come with a warning label. And I want to expand on that a bit, but I do want to mention here that starting next Sunday, Easter Sunday, we're going we're gonna to take a pause from Mistaken Identity and Colossians. We're going to take some weeks, and we're going to start a new series next week called Asking for a Friend. Right. Asking for a friend is the opportunity to ask questions that might be a little embarrassing to ask, you know, like like, uh, you know, is it really okay for the adults to ride the kiddie rides at Disneyland? Asking for a friend, you know, like 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 there's all kinds of questions that we'd be embarrassed to ask in church. 
But we're going to ask him anyway. And next Sunday will be about Easter itself. What does Easter really mean? Uh, Sunday after that, we're going to hone in deeply on the resurrection. Um, there's some other really tough questions that we're going to make our way through. We're going to talk about suicide. Uh, we're going to talk about um, why God cares about who we sleep with. That All kinds of the sort of stuff we don't really always want to talk about. But we should because God talks about it. And there's no reason we should shy away from it. So asking for a friend next Sunday. But religious warning labels, I, I just think so many things come with warning labels these ways. I mean, I certainly appreciate when I make it to the railroad tracks and the railroad tracks have, you know, the crossbar and the big flashing lights. And they're, they're telling me, you know, when I was 16, they told me, hurry up and get across this thing. Um, right. Like gun it. But uh, as I've gotten a little uh, older, I don't know about wiser, they've certainly taught me, right, like, okay, slow down, hit my brakes, wait for the train, let the train pass, be a patient person. I appreciate those kinds of warnings because when I find railroad tracks that have no warning like that, I tend to come up on them and feel like I have to stop anyway and look both ways because who wants to get run over by a train, right? The warning labels are a good thing, but sometimes they're foolish. Like in, in our legal sort of fun society, we put warning labels on things that you're like, duh? Like, really? Like, like, take this. Uh, uh, one of the sleep medicines, uh, I think it was Nitol, one of the sleep label, one of the labels on a sleep medicine, it says, <clears throat> may cause drowsiness. <laughs> sort of hope so. There, there is a chainsaw out there with a warning label that says, do not hold the wrong end. That seems sort of intuitive and obvious to me. Uh, there is a warning label on a gas cap on a jet ski. And, and this is what the warning label on the gas cap of the jet ski says. Never use a lit match or open flame to check fuel level. <laughs> if you're kind of thinking that's a good idea... Uh, let's see what else we got. You know those shade things you put in your car to reflect the sun so your steering wheel's not too hot? Do not drive with sunshield in place. <laughs> Who knew? Right? I mean, if they didn't give me that warning label, I was uh, on an egg carton from the grocery store. This product may contain eggs. Uh, I think this one I heard was a misprint, but there was uh, Staples put out a letter opener. You know, those, those letter openers, they're like this plastic round thing. They have a slit in them with a little blade in there. You just whoosh and open the, uh, open the envelope kind of thing. It was a letter opener. It said, warning label, safety goggles recommended. I've always thought I need safety goggles to open my mail. You know, you never know what the IRS or anyone else might send you along the way. Uh, there was a warning label on a Superman costume. Superman costume does not enable flight or super strength. <clears throat> but it didn't say anything about repelling bullets. Right? Right? Um, or, uh, I, I, I don't know if this is the best for last or what, but, uh, you guys know about scrubbing bubbles that, you know, the thing you put in your, in your toilet to scrubbing bubbles do not use for personal hygiene. <laughs> I've never once in my life thought this would be really good with my toothbrush. I honestly believe that, uh, religion and including 
in a lot of ways, the religion of religianity should come with a warning label. Not just as a joke, but as a real deal. Because in the end, it, it's empty. And I want to talk about why, but I want to read this to you from Colossians chapter 2. I, I'm going to start a little bit back where we've been over the last weeks and just recap a little bit. If, uh, if, if I said Ephesians, I apologize. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 says, When you were dead in your sins... And in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. And he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle over them, triumphing over them by the cross. Therefore, and we covered those verses few weeks ago. And this is what's new. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink. You ever been to church and had people judge you by what you eat or drink? Or with regard to a religious festival or a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day, these are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They're puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They've lost connection with the head, that is Christ, from whom the whole body, that's us, the church, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. And since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Rules like do not handle, do not taste, and do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. He is saying that that lots of traditions were sort of spoken up and breaking up through the surface. And people were saying, if you want to be more spiritual, be like me. Because I don't touch these things. I don't handle these things. There are certain things I do or don't do. And if we're, if we're not clear here, we'll begin to think, oh, well, then he's saying that anything moral is sort of set aside. But that's not really what he's saying. Keep reading. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. The phrase sensual indulgence literally is the fullness of the flesh, the fullness of our sinful nature. The, The idea being that That word fullness there would be the idea of being fully satisfied in the flesh. And if you know anything about yourself, it would be that when your flesh gets any sense of satisfaction, it lasts about two seconds. Right? I eat dinner and I'm ready for dessert. Right? That any satisfaction that comes to the flesh at all often comes very momentarily, but never really satisfies. On the other hand, he argues in Colossians 2 that... Christ is the fullness of God and we are full in Christ. 
And so the fullness we need is all about Christ. And in this text, he begins to say what it's not about is religion. And so I want to say this, that, that religious pride is empty because it all revolves around me. Why is religious pride empty? Because it all revolves around me. I think I had, I didn't bring my note sheet up here, but is that in the notes? All right, right. Thank you. Um, religious pride is empty because it all revolves around me. It revolves around what I think. It revolves around what I do. It revolves around what I feel. It revolves around how I judge other people, right? Judging people by what they eat or drink or with regard to a festival or celebration or Sabbath day. It's empty because it revolves around, in a sense, how I judge other people, but how I do not judge myself. I tend to find that when you run run into ultra-religious types, people who believe truly that they are better than everybody else because of what they do and what they don't do, what they touch and what they don't touch, how they live and how they judge everybody else, that when you meet folks like that, you see its emptiness, but they absolutely don't. But what you often find behind the scenes is that they have a set of standards publicly and they have a different set of standards privately. Right? And what Jesus is aiming for is a sense of authenticity that lives from one standard. And frankly, it's his standard of holiness, one I cannot achieve on my own. One I will never achieve on my own. When I pretend to be better than everybody else, I play God. Which is a pretty dangerous thing to do. Right? When I pretend to be better than everybody else, I'm saying, I'm perfect. If you know me at all, (laughs) you know I'm not perfect. And so what I'm doing when I pretend to be better better than everybody else is I'm playing God. I'm saying I'm like God and I'm attempting to fool other people. But you already know I'm not perfect. When I pretend to play God, when I pretend that I'm better than everybody else, I attempt to fool all of you. But the reality is I only truly fool myself. Because when I'm saying, hey, you're clearly a bad person and I'm clearly a good person and I'm, I mean, I may not be Jesus, but I'm better than you. Notice what I'm doing. I'm turning religion into a comparison game and I'm putting the focus entirely on me and that's just empty. It's empty like a cloud that looks like rain but produces only wind during fire season. Pretty dangerous, right? Hence why we need the warning label. It's empty like a forecast that promises snow. How many times this year have you heard, it might snow tonight? About the last five weeks. Yes, exactly. Like every third night for the last five weeks, including in the next few nights, my phone says it might rain snow mix overnight. What do you think the odds are it actually sticks? Yeah, I mean, that's about the time usually we get like six feet or something, right? When you, when you don't count on anything being realistic anymore. It's empty, like a forecast. I realize I'm reaching on this one, but it, it's religion is empty. Like 
Axe body spray convinces a middle school boy that it will help them meet girls. Right? It's all on the outside, but there's nothing going on substantial on the inside. And the reality is, and this is the one thing that today's message is about, I hope you hear this clear point today, because it's really the one thing I'm trying to say today, that when grace becomes a spiritual race, it's no longer grace, and it's no longer the gospel. When grace becomes a spiritual race, when grace And the idea of Christianity becomes a competition between you and me, and I'm better than you. And we we sort of picture religion like that old joke about the the bear, right? Why did the guy stop to tie his shoes when the bear started chasing him and his buddy? And he turned to his buddy and he said, I don't have to outrun the bear, I just have to outrun you. Weirdly, that showed up in a dream of mine the other night. There was a bear and we were shoe tying and... When grace becomes a spiritual race, a competition, a comparison, it's no longer grace and no longer the gospel. When we play the comparison game, we're, we're doomed either way. Because if, if I take my friend Mark here and I say, look, Mark, man, I am so much better than you. How prideful is that? Yeah, and and if I say, Mark, you are so much better than me, I would never be able to be like you. I'm, I'm living in my insecurity. And the reality is pride and insecurity are both about me and really just two sides of the same coin. And that's a little difficult to admit to ourselves, but they're both both based in an obsession with me, and it's empty. Our spirituality goes wrong when it's about what we think rather than what Jesus thinks. Our spirituality is wrong, it's false, when it's about our individual experiences and our individual knowledge rather than our connection to the body of Christ and to Christ Himself. Our spirituality is false when it's about rules and expectations rather than heart transformation as it relates to our flesh And our bodies. And I think he's making very clear here that on one hand, God is not saying, well, I have no rules, no expectations. I have, I have no sense of like holiness. And because there is a sense in the religious world where there are some who say, Hey, no expectations at all. Like, like, yes, Jesus loves you. Yes, there's a call to grace, but you live however you want. You do whatever you want. You hurt whoever you want. It doesn't really matter. God might have said something back then, but it was misunderstood. So we, so we, so we throw out the parts that we don't like. We keep the parts we do like. There is a version of Christianity that goes down that road. But just as dangerous is a version of Christian... And, and i got to be honest about this. If, if there are no expectations of holiness from God's standpoint, why did Jesus die for our sins? Like if I'm saying God never has expectations, ne- that there's not a law, that there is no sense that God expects holiness from me, that means there's no such thing as sin. And if there's no such thing as sin, the whole idea of Jesus on a cross seems silly. But Easter's not silly. So that's one side of things. But on the other side of things, very, very easily, 
this idea of grace that, that, okay, well, I need Jesus and I need, I need Jesus to, that'll help. I need Jesus to save me. I need Jesus to wash away my sins. Often in some churches becomes, well, I have Jesus who washed away my sins, but look at how good I am now. Look at my Sunday best. Look at, look at the face I portray to the rest of the world and how holy I am out here. Now, I don't want you peering in here. But I'm going to show the world. right? And there is lots of versions of Christianity that go the religious legalism route. And there are lots of versions of Christianity that go the, the religious permissiveness route. And they both miss the idea of grace. Which centers around Jesus Christ himself. And that's what this text is entirely about. So here's some warning labels for you. Our faith is no longer grace-based when it's based on superiority. Starting with superior judgments. When it's based on what we think and what we judge, it's no longer grace-based. He said, verse 16, don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, a Sabbath. Like I've, I, I have no trouble at all with people who practice Sabbathing from the standpoint of taking a day of the week and resting and really releasing and letting go and trusting God. And I, like I, I've taught before that that practicing Sabbath as a as a means of sort of forming us towards rest in Christ is a good thing. But if it's legalistic and look, you better move your church to Saturdays. And if you don't do this and you don't do that, you have to this and that from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday, you must, you must, you must, you must, you must. What we're doing is we're turning that into a religious law. And the New Testament itself not only didn't do that in in the New Testament. Why, why do Jews worship on the Sabbath and Christians worship historically, at least on Sundays, it's all about Easter. That Jesus rose from the dead on a Sunday. But but do you know how legalistic we turn sometimes? Like I got friends who pastor uh, churches that are either large enough, their facilities small enough that they need a third or a fourth service, and they have a service on Saturday night. And there's a brand of Christians out there that go, I would never worship on a Saturday night. Like when does superior judgment, my my judgment is better than yours? Begin to be more about us and our pride. That should have a warning label. My spirituality is better than yours. (laughs) Here's another one. Our faith is no longer grace-based when it's built on superior humility. Which is an oxymoron in of itself. And you've wanted to tell me for a long time I was a moron. So, so let's just go with this, right? Right? Superior humility. My humility is better than your humility. And yet he says... Don't let anyone, verse 18, who delights in false humility, and and actually that phrase shows up again near the end of this text, and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person goes into great detail about what they have seen, and they are puffed up. They are puffed up with idle notions, it says. The word the idle there is actually vain or empty, which is why I call all of this empty religion or empty spirituality. Such a person goes into great detail about what they've seen. They're puffed up with idle notions by their 
unspiritual mind. Literally, that's mind of the flesh. Superior judgment, superior humility. How about superior experiences? Our faith's no longer grace-based when it's based on superior experiences. But, but I went to Bethel Church. But I would never go to Bethel Church. Right? Bethel worship is the best. Bethel worship is evil. My way is better than your way. My tribe is better than your tribe. My camp experience that lasted like six minutes is better than your camp experience. When it becomes about us, when, when, when it's about what I've seen, let me, let me tell you about the revelation of Jesus I had in a dream last night. That gets awfully dangerous because we're taking the focus off what God has revealed in His Word and putting it on ourselves. And every cult you know of started with some dude, and I am meaning it in a male sense, mostly historically. Study the cults of the world. It's some prideful man who said, I know more, follow me and my experience. My way is better than the Bible's way. My way is better than the Jesus way. And that's why we have to be so, so cautious about how and who we put in leadership in churches. And the answer always has to point back, not to ourselves, but to Jesus. Does this make sense? All right, how about another one? Superior rule following. Right? My rules are better than your rules, but better than that, I'm better at following them than you are. Verse 20, since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? He's talking about human-oriented rules here. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with youth, with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. He's saying that they, they attempt to change us from the outside in. If I have a, a person come to me and tell me that they're really struggling with sin in some form, it might be a tongue-oriented sin, right? Like lashing out or lying or something of that nature. That's of the flesh, is it not? It might be a sin related to uh, greed, and they're, they're just struggling on the outside with how they relate to money. And, and, and if, if all I do is give you rules that say, well, don't this and do that, and I don't point you to Jesus, I'm taking away any sense of transformation that might come from the inside out. The reality is, if I could fix myself by following rules... If I could fix myself by following rules, I don't need Jesus. And I can't. If someone comes to me and says, I have a struggle with pornography, or I have a struggle with lust, or, or uh, you know, that is only going to be changed from the inside out, not the outside in. Superior rule following. Uh, the next one, superior, superior knowledge. Now, 
It'll be clear here. Am I saying, and I'm going to talk about knowledge for a second, but am I saying that there's no point in reading your Bible because knowledge is just going to make you spiritual? No, I'm not, I'm not saying that at all. I say read your Bibles all the time. Read your Bible, read your Bible, read your Bible. We put out those Bible bookmarks. Read your Bible. It matters that we read our Bible. But when I begin to point to me and I say, look, my knowledge is more than your knowledge. Let me show you how much I know compared to what you know. I enter into pride very easily and very quickly. And when it becomes an, an, an I know more than you, where it's human commands and human teachings and focus on what I know, I'm, I'm simply saying that I've, well, guess what? I've lost grace because I'm now focused and obsessed even with having more knowledge than you. And if having knowledge was enough, You ever seen a person who's like, hey, they got a PhD, but they can't control themselves? You ever seen your heroes fall? Because on one hand, they know a lot, and on the other hand, as the Bible says, knowledge puffs up. Love, on the other hand, builds up. Our problem is not a problem of knowledge more than not. It's a love of self rather than a love for Jesus. One last thing. We're no longer grace-based when our grace is built on superior self-control. Superior self-control. He said, Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. He is getting after the fact that God's standard of holiness as it relates to sensuality or sexuality is a standard that says, I'm called to honor God with my body. Our culture, on the other hand, wants to say, honor yourself. Like last time I, I don't expect the world to live by the standards of Jesus. I, I don't expect that at all. And any idea that we're going to like vote the standards of Jesus into like, 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 oh, if we could just go back to the 19 whatevers. You know, if, some of you lived through the 19 whatevers. There was a lot of pretending going on back then. We'll get into this weeks down the road, but the standard of Jesus as it relates to sexuality is a very, very high, high standard. Because the standard is that I deny self and honor God. Deny self. But but even that, I'm going to deny myself. Look at how much better I am at denying myself. My self-denial is better than your self-denial. Right? When it becomes about me. Because the reality is, if my sense of the flesh, it could be satisfied enough in me for God to go, yeah, that's actually pretty good. Right, then a whole lot more of us wouldn't feel all the brokenness we feel. We wouldn't see millions of families destroyed over lust or idolatry or all the other things that happen in the sexual realm. There wouldn't be all the damage. 
And, and frankly, Christians have a credibility problem on this issue because we go, shh, don't talk about us. But we'll talk about them or they or we'll talk about other people all day long. But we never want to admit to ourselves we can't control ourselves. But what happens when Jesus and grace begin to get a hold of my life is he begins to change me, not from the outside in, but from the inside out. And my want to's begin to change. And so if Christianity is just a list of ways you're supposed to be superior, and you're supposed to have superior judgments and superior humility and superior experiences and superior rule following and knowledge and superior self-control, what we're doing is we're setting a standard so high, still lower than God's standard, which actually is perfection and holiness, but so high that we know we'll never be able to achieve it. We'll feel like failures all the time. And Jesus comes along and says, you're right, you do fall short. It's the idea of sin. You do fall short, and you'll never be able to change yourself. You need me. And Jesus taught it, and Jesus lived it, and he was righteous on our behalf. And what happens on that cross is that all of my sins go his direction and all of his righteousness gets applied my direction. And that's why we call it grace. I don't deserve either of those two things. The bad stuff that he takes away or all of the good that he puts into my life. All the kindness, all the blessing, all the mercy, all, all, all the his spirit, his presence, his power, all that he gives me. I deserve none of it. And so it's grace. And in the end, what you find in churches that live for grace is that grace brings freedom. And so, to be clear, can I see your notes? That was really dumb of me not to bring mine, but I just want to make sure I really did what I thought I did. Yeah, I got a whole list of stuff here on grace that I didn't give you any blanks for because I want to make sure you don't miss this. Grace brings freedom from the insecurity of pride and the pride of insecurity. We've already talked about two sides, same coin, right? Grace brings freedom from all that pride and all that insecurity because the comparison game goes out the door. Grace brings freedom from the need to be better than everybody else, right? Well, I better go to church Sunday because I can be better than the guy that only comes on Easter. You know, I... Somebody said this morning, like, hey, good to meet you. Like, we haven't seen you in forever. And I said, yeah, I always like to come the Sunday before Easter uh, so that nobody thinks that I'm new on Easter Sunday. You know, I mean, it's, I, the guy misses a whole two Sundays and it's... Grace brings freedom from the need to perform. No, 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 I've missed one. Grace brings freedom from what everybody else thinks. Guess what? What everybody else thinks is irrelevant what God thinks, an audience of one, what Jesus thinks, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God, three persons. That matters forever. What all the people around me think is irrelevant. Yet we demote God in that sense and we elevate everybody else. And we obsess about... what everybody else thinks. Grace brings freedom from the need to perform and pretend, right? Right? It, it, church is about being better than everybody else. Then you got to put your good face on it, church. You got to you got to make sure everybody else thinks you're holy, especially if you're anywhere near leadership, right? That you're holier. 
promise you, there is nothing holier about me than you. The only thing holy in me, about me, is Jesus in me. Christ in me, the hope of glory, as he says earlier in Colossians. Grace brings freedom from religious legalism. We talked about this just a moment ago, right? The brand of churches, they're just highly better than everybody else. And they, they, you know, I mean, I could name pastor after pastor. It sort of falls into this mode, right? Or religious permissiveness. And again, you can name churches and pastors who sort of fall into the, it's all good, right? As long as, as long as we're loving, there's nothing wrong ever. Unless, unless, unless you, don't agree with their form of nothing wrong, and then you're wrong. But that's not wrong, except when you're wrong. But and, and it is very easy to see how how this applies not just in the religious realm, but uh, in society in general, because there is judgmentalism and my tribe's better than your tribe all over the American experience these days. The answer is Jesus. Grace brings freedom from living overwhelmed by my failures. Right? If, if the cross is about anything, it's about taking the fact that I fall short and putting that on the shoulders of Jesus Himself. Likewise, grace brings freedom from living imprisoned by my religion. Imprisoned by my religion. It's very easy if it's rules and with no relationship with Christ, if it's just me and my ability to follow it, then those rules begin to overwhelm and hem me in. And in the end, grace brings freedom from loneliness, from aloneness, from isolation, from trying to do it all by myself. Because if you really have to be holier than everybody else, then you can't let anybody into your world and into your soul. But in true grace-based Christianity, we need each other to cheer each other on and to comfort each other in failures. Not to say your failure is good, right? Not to say there's never a wrong, but to say Jesus' grace is enough. And call us back to following and walking with Him. The bottom line here is that when I feed my soul on the grace of Jesus, Jesus Himself transforms me from the inside out. Jesus Himself transforms my desires. And I think I only had two things in your notes. I had desires and relationships. And I wrote in between those in my notes and my behaviors. Right, That it becomes a transformation of my desires and therefore my behaviors. And then because my desires and my behaviors are transformed, then my relationships. This is what grace does to my life. We get spirituality right when it centers around Jesus and we live for an audience of one. We get spirituality right when it strengthens our community connection to each other because it's Christ in you and Christ in me. And Our spirituality is right when grace begins to change our want-tos, not our have-tos. I would never, ever, ever stand here and say, we're perfect as a church at these things, because that'd be like superior, right? But I want to say to you with all my heart, let's aim to be the church of grace. Are you with me? All right. I'm going to end with our two prayers and, and we're going to sing again in worship.
I always end our service with two prayers because it's important we get this right. The first is a prayer of salvation. And if you need Jesus today, maybe you'd pray with me right here, right now to become a Christian for the very first time. Even online, right here, right now. You pray with me just like this. Dear Jesus, I don't deserve you. But I acknowledge and I admit that I am deep inside a sinner, a person who falls short. Jesus, I ask you to forgive that. I don't deserve it, but you offer it. So Jesus, I believe you died on that cross. That you were buried in a borrowed grave. That you're alive today. And since you're alive today, bring your grace to my life. And take over my life and be my God. And change me from the inside out. Transform my life and make me like you, Jesus. Walk with me every single day. Help me to desire to walk with you. Above all. In Jesus' name. And if that's you and you prayed to follow Jesus for the very first time today, ask him to forgive your sins, to be the Lord and the God of your life. We'd love to celebrate that just like we celebrate baptism today. We would love, love, love to celebrate that. Just let us know on a, on a communication card or find one of our team after the service or email me even. I'm Brian, B-R-I-A-N at harvestchurcheugene.com. I would love, love, love to tell you a little more about what it means to be a Christ follower. A lot of us became Christ followers maybe a few weeks ago, maybe a few years ago, maybe a few decades ago. But we need this recommitment to grace, not religion, in our church. And so if you'd pray this prayer of application with me, I would at least invite you to do that. In fact, maybe you'd pray it out loud with me today. Dear Jesus, thank you for these warning labels that remind us when we're moving away from you and your grace. Jesus, direct our worship and our leadership and us as a church so that we are always centered around you. So that our community is about you. And so that our hearts are transformed in you and by you. Jesus, help us to live for you. An audience of one. In Jesus' name.